Welcome everyone to the Family Medicine Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies within the field of family medicine and primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tanning. Welcome back, everybody, to the Family Medicine Podcast. This is episode three with Dr. Stephen Miller. So before we get started, let me do a bit of an intro here and remind everybody what the purpose of this podcast is. As you probably know, but maybe not, the reason I do this podcast as a labor of love is to explore the world of primary care physicians, especially those trained in family medicine. And I do so by hearing their stories of their whole journey from their upbringing through medical school choosing a specialty and into their career as a physician. And Dr. Miller had no shortage of compelling and inspiring stories, both personal and professional, that I found really engaging. And really, the entire time he was talking, I felt like I could vividly picture the entire scene he was describing. Some of the unique things that we discussed in this episode include his practice in the county where A.T. Still was born, which is pretty cool to, to be the first DO to, uh, to be back there. His journey to get his Master's of Public Health in a town that was four hours away from his home, all the while running a practice full-time, and, and so many more stories. It was really great to hear such an experienced and versatile physician talk about his craft. His passion for all aspects of his work really comes through in this interview, and there's so many gems that he gave us in this podcast. I was I felt really fortunate to uh, just be listening to him for uh, about 45 minutes. It was great. Oh, and best of all, he wraps up the interview with a story about an 80-year-old lady and a donkey. So stay till the end for that one. I won't uh, spoil it right now. Okay, so let's get into it. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. I actually started off on the completely wrong foot as, as I started the recording um, to the interview. I said something like, okay, great. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for being on my podcast. Oh, and I realized I just called him Stephen, which is just rude. Uh, so I immediately stopped the recording and apologized to him. And I kind of explained to him that I had written his name so many times in the last you know couple days on documents and files and and emails just setting the whole thing up that just came out that way. So he was very uh, gracious and great about it, and he didn't sweat it at all. So I appreciate that from him. But we started over immediately, and you can catch us, or maybe just me, laughing about it as uh, we kick the thing off. So, so I guess now let's get into it. So everybody, please welcome Dr. Stephen Miller. Dr. Miller, thank you for being on my podcast. Um, I say let's just get right into uh, talking about your life and your work. Um, so maybe we can start with you talking about your upbringing. Sure. Well, yeah. And uh, thanks for inviting me on. I appreciate it very much. So uh, uh, I am uh, a product of Philadelphia, a suburb of Philadelphia. 
and uh, went to school uh, in uh, Philadelphia, uh, high school, college, uh, and medical school. Uh, graduate of PCOM, uh, class of 1982. PCOM. Yeah, PCOM it is. That's right. And uh, uh, did most of my rotations uh, in uh, western Pennsylvania in the third and fourth year. Uh, and it was a bit of a journeyman from hospital to hospital. Got to do uh, uh, an awful lot of uh, patient care that way and be involved as uh, first and second assists and uh, learned a lot of medicine from a lot of really high-quality people um, that uh, gave me uh, uh, some real insight uh, into what it was to, to be an osteopathic physician. The only real insight that I had before that was uh, my own family doc uh, who got me interested in osteopathic medicine in the first place. Really? You had a osteopath as your physician? I did, Catherine England. And uh, uh, she, uh, from time to time, uh, did uh, uh, manipulation on me as I played football and uh, uh, did some dance and uh, uh, was fairly abusive to my body because of those activities. and. Uh, uh, learned uh, at a fairly young age uh, what an osteopathic physician can do to uh, uh, help you uh, uh, keep doing what you need to do during the day and what you want to do it. Yeah, that's great. Did you were you inspired kind of right off the bat or at a very young age, or did you just kind of learn what an osteopath was and then kind of get inspired to follow that career path uh, yourself later? Yeah, I have to say it, it was a journey. Uh, for me, uh, I wanted to be a, a paleontologist for the longest time. Sure. Uh, anatomy uh, always appealed to me, uh, but I, I, I wanted to, uh, had a great desire to find out where we came from, mm -hmm. uh, as a species, I mean. And uh, uh, my early career path uh, was uh, really focused uh, in that way on um, anatomy, physiology, some medical anthropology. Somewhere along the line, uh, enough uh, people who uh, I considered to be mentors kept telling me, you know, Miller, you're pretty good at this stuff, but what you're really good at is helping people. You really need to go into medicine. And eventually, I started listening to them and uh, then uh, uh, really started listening to them. Uh, when I uh, started doing things, um, just volunteer and uh, they were right. I uh, had a real love. Uh, I am a caretaker mentality, period. Mm -hmm. And uh, they recognized that in me. And uh, um, I'm grateful because that's what sent me uh, to school. That's uh, that's amazing. I also kind of wanted to be a paleontologist. Maybe every you know, little <laughs> boy did playing with dinosaurs or whatnot. Um, but that so you went to medical school and then we're all Calvin, aren't we? <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then you went to, um, you said you did your rotations in rural, uh, most of them. Yeah. I was also in downtown Philadelphia too. And, uh, the big university hospitals, I didn't enjoy those rotations nearly as much because, uh, you didn't get the same kind of connection with the patients that you do. Um, you do while they're in the hospital, but you don't, uh, once they're out of the hospital and in the community and, when I was doing more rural rotations, you'd run into people, or better yet, they ran into you and recognized you, and um, that uh, gave me an appreciation of um, what a community leader, a physician, can actually be. Yeah, that's been actually a theme that's come up a number of times on the podcast, so 
I'm glad to hear you say that. Did you find that as a medical student, you had more opportunities uh, just to get put to work in the rural setting rather than the urban setting? <laughs> the definition of a medical student <laughs> is get put to work, okay. <laughs> uh, especially in the third year. So, I mean, that's just what we do. Sure. Uh, and uh, um, if we're smart, uh, we look for those opportunities because, well, we learn by doing. Yes. And so the more we get to do, the more we're going to learn, the better we're going to be. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and uh, you get to do some uh, community-minded uh, activities that the local hospital is doing, and you're identified with that hospital, mm -hmm. which is probably the biggest entity in the community, so you're something of celebrity status already just yeah. for walking into the room. And uh, um, great responsibility comes with that because people are immediately looking to you uh, to hear what you have to say. And so it taught me immediately that uh, you talk about a bully pulpit. There is nothing quite like a community gathering when you're coming into the room as a healthcare provider. Uh, and uh, the amount of, of respect, the amount of attention uh, that you're given is incredible, and it's a gift. And uh, uh, so I learned early on that uh, uh, you need to be prepared to make the most of that moment because, heck, you're going to reach people that are just going to do better uh, with their lives health-wise as a result of that, and... Uh, that's what it's all about. Absolutely, that, that um, you know very much speaks to the leadership role of a, a physician or a med medical student or a resident. Yeah. Um, and I kind of wanted to transition into asking you a little bit about your residency and how that, I guess, how you uh, what the journey was from being a third and fourth year medical student to picking a specialty and then uh, and wow. going into residency. Well, it was hard for me, as, as you, you might uh, guess from my CV, because I, I did uh, medical residency as internal uh, medicine, general, uh, as well as family medicine. Um, I really thought that uh, somewhere during my fourth year, uh, fairly early on, um, there was no match then, so you, you got a telephone call, you, you applied individually, and then you got a telephone call from a program director, so it wasn't nearly as regimented as it is today in, in terms of this month you do this and then this month you do that. So okay. uh, sometime during my, my fourth year fall semester, it, it just coalesced in my mind that I really loved to do internal medicine. I loved uh, being in the ICU. I loved um, uh, getting into that situation where someone was in real trouble and um, they really needed the help of someone who was there and who actually could help them. This was at a time in medicine when many of the uh, modern uh, tools uh, that we have to use were really coming into their own 
and uh, uh, not only commercially available, but have been available long enough um, to uh, uh, develop a fairly good sensitivity and specificity. Mm-hmm. You could trust the data. Okay. Swan GANs catheters being a, an example. Mm-hmm. So I'm dating myself, but <laughs> um, the, the idea of, of being able to determine LV dynamics in, in an objective way uh, to augment your physical exam, to be able to utilize brand new medications, these brand new things called ASIN inhibitors, after load reducers that really worked, and to be able to utilize that uh, and measure the effect of those medications uh, using uh, objective measurements like swan GANs, catheterizations, A-lines, that sort of thing, Uh, the transducers had become much, much more reliable for those things as well. It it was uh, an inducement to me to to get into medicine, so I, I really, really loved it. I also loved the primary care part of it, talking to people, being with them, being in the office, uh, seeing them in their homes. And so I just was really torn. And and I was grateful for the rotating osteopathic internship because it gave me an extra year to really think about it. And I kept going back and forth between family medicine and internal medicine. But I, I, in the end, I stuck with what I had come up with in the fourth year, fall of fourth year, and uh, went into internal medicine. Loved it. Uh, it was everything that I wanted it to be. Got out of, of that residency. The National Health Service Corps um, pulled me from that to do my core commitment uh, because there was an enormous need in Southwest Virginia, Appalachia. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing of Southwest Virginia, Appalachia. I'm embarrassed to say that the only thing I knew about Appalachia was the Beverly Hillbillies, and thank God that's not accurate. Okay, sure. Uh, but uh, um, there I was uh, one day in the middle of an ICU in downtown Philadelphia, and literally uh, the following Monday, uh, running a primary care health clinic and critical access hospital as its internist. Um, and uh, it was me, myself, I, and my partner wow. uh, for uh, most of the county. We had a surgeon and we had an ER doc okay. uh, as well. <laughs> That's nice to have. It, it was. And uh, we shared call and eventually we got another ER doc, which really helped. Uh, How big of a population were you serving? About 35,000. Okay. That seems like a, uh, a lot for just a, a handful of docs to, it uh, was. to take on. It was. Um, but what I found out about that, I was there about three months. And I had done a couple of house calls by then. Um, and the first couple of them were disasters because I was a Yankee from Philadelphia in a Ford Escort. And I was constantly getting that Yankee Ford stuck in mud and uh, in places where it should not be. And people had to pull me out. And they were pleasant about it, nice about it. You know, it just made fun of me being the Yankee duck. Uh, but uh, on about my third or fourth house call, I had figured out where to park the Escort without it dying. Right. And uh, gotten up on the porch, taking care of business. and. Uh, was sitting outside um, on uh, uh, the front porch, and uh, we were just sitting. It was a beautiful fall afternoon, and early fall, and uh, uh, just started playing a banjo. Uh, there was a couple of banjos there. I knew how to play, and uh, uh, but I didn't know how to make good music. Okay. I knew how to play, but I didn't know how to make good music. I've been there. 
And uh, I was just fortunate enough to uh, have uh, treated the relative of someone who was really good at a five-string banjo. And um, that night, we started playing together. And every time I did house calls in that area, I'd stop by and we'd spend some time on the front porch. Didn't take long at all for me to fall in love with Appalachia, fall in love with the culture, fall in love with the whole idea of rural medicine. Um, a lot for the reasons that I mentioned before, because you're such a presence in the community and you can make such a difference because people are looking up to you. But even more than that, folks were just folks. They're open, really open. And uh, uh, that meant I was able to develop relationships um, that I really had only dreamed about being able to develop as a clinician mm-hmm. um, w- with uh, his patient population. And uh, it really felt like home. You felt like they were more open um, than people in an urban setting? Um, the patient population in an urban setting? Yeah. Well, I come out of South Philly. So um, okay. <laughs> it's a little bit different than Appalachian. <laughs> folks is folks, and folks are, are open with each other uh, as soon as they get to know you. Right. And in Appalachia, where I was, folks opened up right away, and I got to know them right away. And then I got to know their families and their extended families. And um, there's nothing like being able to really understand why someone is struggling with their health care. There's nothing like being able to sit down with them in their own home to understand what, where the barriers really are mm-hmm. and uh, how you can really help them to uh, adopt a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, it was that one of the bigger bigger barriers that you found was the adopting a healthier lifestyle. The scourge of the 20th century everywhere right. in the United States that I've ever lived, uh, it's lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. Right. Thank God tobacco wasn't anything near what it was when, when right. I first started medicine, but obesity is still right there and sedentary lifestyle and uh, uh, a lack of attention to um, ourselves and uh, uh, what, what our needs are mm-hmm. um, is is still rife um, in, in, in any culture that uh, I've had the privilege of living in and uh, uh, serving. Um, so uh, in that regard, uh, uh, no, folks are just simply folks, mm-hmm. and it's hard to live a healthy lifestyle it and is. get everything done that we need to do. It, it's a journey, and you have to find out what is keeping people from making that journey, and no better way to do that than to know them in their own home. Absolutely. I had uh, a couple of times when folks were coming in and out of the hospital, we were doing everything that we could do for them. They had congestive heart failure, and um, the actual problem was a diet. They didn't understand what salt content actually was or didn't understand what foods actually were high in salt and not. And when you're standing in someone's home and you can look in their kitchen, you know what they're eating and you know what the issues are. And all of a sudden, uh, the education becomes focused to where someone understands the kinds of foods that they need to eat. And I also understood how difficult it was to get fresh food, Mm -hmm. how difficult it was to afford it uh, and uh, uh, keep it in the house certain times a year Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, what we had to do to help folks be able to eat healthier. Yeah. And you said you were able to, you know, go into people's houses to get this information. What are they eating? What are, how are they living? Um, Because you had that opportunity in the rural setting 
we don't really have that opportunity as much in an urban setting to form those close relationships with people. But is there a way that we can kind of bring that element of healthcare into a more rural primary care, you know, setting? Yeah. So, well, you're right. I mean, I was invited to people's homes. Right. Um, and uh, sometimes it was just simply um, they were fairly far away from where my practice was, whether that was southwest Virginia or uh, later in, in rural Maine. Uh, folks uh, sometimes were 35, 40, 50 miles away from me, uh, dirt roads. Mm -hmm. And if they were sick, they couldn't make the journey. I had to make the journey to them. Yep. And so, yeah, being invited into someone's home is a privilege and, and is an opportunity that you have to take advantage of. So in a setting other than, than rural, the most important word there is invited in. Okay. Whether it's in, in, invited into their home, yes, but actually invited into their life. Right. So the most important piece of the equation is the relationship that you have with the patient the tighter that relationship is, the more trusting that relationship is, the more honest the patient is going to be with you in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's something that I learned. You see it for yourself, so the honesty becomes mandatory when you're standing in someone's house. You know what they're eating. You know what they're doing. Right. So the trick is to have that kind of a relationship with the patients so that when they are sitting in your office, that place of power because it's yours, I call it a dragon because it's a place of great mystery and great power, mm. and to sit in that environment and to have someone open up to you as if you were in their own home, is it is a skill, but it is mostly listening see what i did there i was just listening no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> i i agree I, in my experience i can uh i can relate uh, at least a little bit to that it's mostly listening and uh, allowing the conversation to go where it needs to go so sometimes that means when you're worried about somebody you have them come in and they're the last appointment of the day and the staff is going home, so you don't have to pay them overtime. You don't have to worry about people sitting in the lobby. Mm -hmm. And you just have time to just sit back and just listen and just let someone uh, talk. Uh, and uh, uh, in that way, uh, make that relationship deep enough to the point where you really find out what's going on with somebody. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I want to hear more about your, your journey through residency um, because... <laughs> it's a long time ago. <laughs> uh, well, I guess my, my question is, um, how did residency hold up to your expectations of it? Were there things about it that were completely different than you expected? Um, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I, I have this memory because I, I journal almost every day. Oh, nice. uh, and and I don't journal the events. I, I journal the emotions so that I, I always remember. Um, and uh, uh, I also have a, a picture of my first day uh, as a, a resident intern. Mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, the hospital was sadistic enough to take a picture of all of us and then give us a copy of it framed so that we would have it for the rest of our lives. <laughs> right. So I've got it, and it, it is in my office. If you're in Utah, you can come in and, and see it. 
Um, and, and I'm standing off to one side trying to look like Joe Cool. Sure. Uh, and inside, uh, I'm just a, a, a jumble of nerves because uh, when this photograph is over, I'm going to put my white coat on and I'm going to go into that hospital and I'm going to start taking care of patients. And my first rotation was on the OB ward uh, as, as a bona fide doctor resident in right. training. And uh, I, I was terrified uh, of doing that because um, all of a sudden I went from zero responsibility to uh, a massive amount of responsibility. And I had students underneath me who were waiting inside for me to get finished the picture and to follow me as I had followed uh, residents uh, for two years. So I'll always remember that moment because it was a moment of it was not a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. It was a privilege uh, to to be given uh, that responsibility. And uh, I felt keenly the weight of that privilege as I walked back through those doors and went up to the OB ward. Wow. Does everybody feel that feeling of just terror or uh, that they don't um, even know what they're doing? It's not terror. It's, it's uh, in the sense of not knowing what you're doing. Um, it, it is the realization of, of that responsibility and the bit of terror that comes along with that. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, everybody um, articulated pretty much the same thing. And by the end of the day, we were seasoned veterans. By the end of the day. By the end of the day, uh, because we had proven to ourselves and to our patients that our training was good. Right. We did know what we were doing. And most importantly, and remember, we all came to this conclusion at just about the same time. We were all sitting in the residence quarters. We all got done just about the same time. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, but <sighs> we did. And we're all sitting there together. We all came to the realization at the same time that, you know, the most important thing that I learned today was I really was okay with asking for help when right. I needed it. Because that was the thing that was the most concerning uh, to me especially was, you know, am I going to be able to ask for help? Am I going to be able to ask for help? Or am I going to be pressured into trying to do it myself? No. I was able to ask for help. That's a huge breakthrough. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I know I've struggled with that my whole life because I want to be able to do everything myself and maybe someday I will. And like you said, by the end of the day, you were able to... No, nope. you know, and I knew are, that there were an awful yeah. lot of people in there that were willing to help us, wanting to help us, and who were just waiting to see if we needed the help. I didn't appreciate that one until I was a program director for a residency uh, program a couple of decades later. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I used to either sit uh, in my office uh, or after hours uh, sometimes uh, sit outside my office because I didn't want the, the brand new uh, resident interns to, to think that I didn't trust them. So I didn't want them to think that I was in my office at 11 o'clock at night because I didn't trust them. Right. So I'd go someplace else and just sit. Um, and uh, I did not appreciate how many people were actually doing that for me when I was an intern until I was doing it for my interns. Right. Of just how many people are there around you. They are allowing you the ability to say when I yeah. need the help now. And that's what they want to see from sure. you. And then they go home because I know you're going to call them. Right. They're, they're kind of empower you, you, but are also a supportive safety help net. You. Yeah. That's right. 
Did you feel, um, I guess, a, a similar thing going from resident to attending physician, or was that a more smooth transition? Well, it, it literally was a weekend, so I went from being a resident to an attending in a completely different culture. Um, so uh, uh, that was quite an adjustment, and uh, uh, it was not nearly as... Um, I'm not sure what word to to use here. Uh, I knew what I was capable of doing and had a very good idea of what I needed to do Mm -hmm. my first day as an attending. So I was not worried about my own abilities um, at all. Uh, what I was worried about was whether I was going to have enough support and be able to sleep or, or if I, I was just uh, uh, going to have to be on call for you know, too long a period of time. Right. Uh, and that wasn't the case either. We took care of each other very well. Okay. So uh, um, now my only real concern was, was the community going to accept me as a Yankee? Okay, sure. Yeah. And I found that out real fast. Right. Uh, do... do um I guess you seemed like you had success in being accepted by that community. Did every physician feel that way or get accepted in the same way you did? Or did some of them kind of, uh, I guess, get shunned or not I, as accepted? I had an in. I was the first DO mm-hmm. to practice in the county that still was born, mm-hmm. Lee County, Virginia. I didn't know that. I thought still was born in Missouri. Right. I didn't remember that, right. uh, but my patients I I sure did. My patients sure knew it, and they came in and said, "You're do. You want them bone crushers? Well, I want you to try it out on me." So they wanted to see me. They wanted me to take care of them. They never missed an opportunity to tell me that still was one of theirs, and I still was the reason why I was a physician, and therefore they were the reason why I was a physician. So they really felt like they uh, uh, had ownership uh, in in that way, a, a part. They were actually a part of, of my journey and my abilities to be a physician, so I had an in. Uh, I, others... They did okay too, so I, I, they they had their own ins, but that was mine. Okay, that's good. That's good to know that there are many different ins. <laughs> um, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your uh, um, career in public health. Or uh, I know you went back to school about twenty years after graduating medical school. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. No, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not keeping <laughs> keeping score. Um, but uh, you got your master's in public health. Um, why did you go back and uh, get that? Uh, there were a lot of reasons why I, I did that, um, but I was really motivated to do it because uh, my practice was about four and a half hours from Boston, and I, I went to Tufts, and it was not an online course or an online degree. I had to be there three days a week. Mm-hmm. They were evening courses. Main, I was able to do it, do that four-hour journey down while still uh, being in full-time practice as a a clinician and also medical director of multiple offices at that time, Mm -hmm. I was able to do that because Maine is so far east Mm -hmm. that it really ought to be on Atlantic time. And in fact, uh, folks put themselves on Atlantic time uh, so that uh, people are at work by 6.30 in the morning. So I used to open my office for people to come in and have their labs drawn and uh, perhaps do a, an early visit before they go to the office. We were open at 5.30. Mm-hmm. So I could put in a full day 
uh, and then drive to Boston for uh, evening uh, uh, courses and then be back uh, for uh, work the next day. Wow, that's dedication. And I was motivated to do this. And the reason why I was motivated to do it was uh, I, I was tired of, of being that voice but not being as articulate as I wanted to be with data or uh, with uh, organized purpose uh, in trying to do an initiative. Mm -hmm. And I realized that an MPH, with its public focus, its focus on communications, its focus on health literacy, its focus on statistics, is a package that was uniquely suited to help me be a much better community leader. Mm -hmm. While I was doing it, I also realized that I absolutely loved the aspect of developing a community program or a curriculum uh, for a residency or medical school, and that's what really ignited my desire to want to teach as well. So uh, in my final years in Maine, um, I helped in the uh, state house uh, in the public health department um, and uh, uh, did a lot of community initiatives for health literacy, diabetes. Uh, we were part of uh, Maine Health Alliance uh, initiatives for uh, diabetes that was statewide, adult diabetes and mm -hmm. uh, adult literacy, a twin initiative to help people understand their disease and to be healthy. Uh, and make good lifestyle choices and understand those choices. Just being able to read a food label, for example. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, being a, um, a public health graduate, I was able to organize those initiatives in a much more meaningful way, was able to get grants because I was able to organize the data, organize the thought, give it to them the way that they wanted it with process objectives, short and long-term objectives. Those were all things that... Um, I didn't get training for in medical school nearly to the degree that I needed to to be an effective community leader in public health. So that's why I did it. And uh, it sparked uh, uh, a real um, insatiable desire uh, to go into medical education too. Okay, so you hadn't been in medical education before that. I had for the entire time that I was in Maine. Uh, I was a preceptor for four different schools okay. uh, and uh, took students regularly, third and fourth year students, uh, and uh, taught at uh, UNE, usually in the spring, usually in the GI course or their, their primary clinical skills course, small group discussions kind of thing. Loved it. But it was a part of who I was as a community doc, as a preceptor, as an adjunct faculty. It's, it's when I started doing the, the program development for uh, uh, community projects and uh, the, my MPH program and afterwards that I realized that uh, I really loved developing curriculum. I loved teaching in a didactic forum uh, and uh, just came to me over time that uh, my next career had to be in medical education formally. That's beautiful. I, I love when uh, people just kind of follow steps to get to their end goal by just going one step at a time. Well, at each point in the journey, uh, my wife, uh, Kathy, has always been the one who has been there, who has listened, and then who has said, um, you know, this is where you need to go. And she's always been right. They always are. Yeah. 
Um, well, I, I want to ask you about um, if you have anything kind of on the top of your head of an interesting case that <laughs> might, um, I guess my thought is that you might have a case that has um, maybe no storybook ending to it or a case that was so difficult uh, and maybe you never even got an, an answer to what was going on, a, a clear diagnosis or just anything that really challenged you as a physician. Um, okay, so uh, one that's got an open end to it that uh, uh, was a continuation kind of a thing? Or, sure, yeah, um, that sounds great. Yeah, I, I mean, in any given day, if you know precisely what's going on um, with 25% of the folks that you have seen that day, you're doing really well. And the rest of the folks, you've got a pretty decent idea of what's going on, but you're not certain. And over time, you eventually, you know, get there mm -hmm. in the vast majority of, of cases. But there are those instances where you have patients and you're continuously scratching your head uh, that you don't know what's going on with them and, and you're not quite sure what's happening. And um, you ask for help and you get specialist help and everyone's pretty much in the same boat or you go down a couple of different rabbit holes thinking that that's the, the way to go and it ends up not uh, being that way uh, uh, for that patient. And... Uh, um, Sure. Uh, there are, are uh, many instances where you have that and, and where you have the opportunity, because you're in primary care, you have an opportunity over time to try and figure out what's wrong. In the acute setting, it's uh, far different uh, because you don't have that luxury of time. You may only have minutes mm -hmm. to figure out what's going on. And so if you lose someone in that setting, it's tragic, it's terrible, it hurts, but it hurts a whole lot more uh, if you're not able to find out what's going on with someone over time because you've had many different bites at the apple and you haven't been able to figure out what it was uh, in, in, in time to help someone either um, uh, with morbidity or mortality. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, those are the ones that I have always found, uh, the ones, the situations that I always found that have hurt the most because you just weren't able to get to the, the bottom of the answer. Fortunately, in medicine, that really does not happen often at all. Mm -hmm. um, most of the time what happens uh, in primary care medicine is that you and your family and your staff are the only ones that know that you just kick saved someone because you saved them so far upstream, they didn't even know that they were going to get sick or might get sick. They didn't have any end organ damage yet. Right. But yet they started adopting healthy lifestyles. And so you knew that they were going to be yay. Sure. But they yeah. never really knew that. But you right? got to yeah. them early. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, uh, in primary care, that's usually what it is. Uh, or if you do have a, a chronic problem that takes a long time to find out, you j eventually do get to the answer. And the reward I found is, is just so much greater. The, the feeling, um, the, the relationship building, the uh, uh, feeling of, of, yes, I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing in my life and I'm helping people how I need to help them. That inner feeling, that peace that you get when you know that you have really helped someone, um, that feeling is so much deeper 
when you eventually get there after a really long, long slog of trying to find out what's wrong with somebody. Mm-hmm. It's good yeah. when you kick save somebody. It feels great. Yeah. But it feels so much better when you get there after a long, long, long diagnostic haul. Right. I love the kick save analogy. <laughs> Um, and you said basically that that's uh, uh, more of a rarity in family medicine or um, primary care that you have that long uh, haul with uh, a patient that is just uh, very difficult to find out what's going on. Fortunately, that's rare. Yeah, yeah. that's good. I kind of want to get back to a, a little bit of a public health perspective um, and ask you uh, about the doctor shortage in this country. And I know that that is a little bit more uh, highlighted in the primary care physician shortage in this country. And I've heard, of, I guess, uh, people talk about it in a couple different ways, either a doctor shortage or a poor distribution of doctors, especially um, favoring the urban centers rather than uh, rural regions of the country. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what is being done about that, if anything, and what can be done in the future? Well, there's a lot of of good people, uh, both in and outside of government, both in and outside of medicine, um, that are are trying to address this this issue uh, in in a proactive way, in a constructive way, um, where they're really trying to get at the root of the problem, access, um, and uh, then uh, uh, be able to develop strategies where preventative health measures are rewarded mm-hmm. rather than uh, procedure-based right. measures uh, rewarded. There's a, there's a lot of folks that are really trying. Um, there are a lot of folks that are entrenched uh, in, in their own uh, camps and their own concerns as well um, that uh, wish to continue uh, to have that that portion of healthcare uh, not change, and uh, um, be able to continue business as is, as human beings like to do. Sure. So, um, on a national stage, when you have that kind of dichotomy, uh, it's no wonder that we have a difficult time trying to get to a common purpose and a common uh, response of how to deal with it. And I think there's no better example of uh, just how divided the nation is on this issue than if you take a look at uh, how the Affordable Care Act uh, initially passed, uh, the rigidity of the camps in in the four, and again, and I'm not talking Democrat, Republican. I'm talking mm-hmm. stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, it played it out politically that way because we're a two-party system. But um, uh, I'm talking about the stakeholders. And uh, uh, that's a graphic example of how divided the stakeholders in healthcare are in this country and why it is so difficult for us to get to where we need to be. So it is a resource issue. Physicians are part of that resource issue. It is a distribution issue, it's a total issue, but it's also a focus issue of how are you focusing the manpower that you have? Physicians, uh, advanced uh, practice uh, 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 clinicians, um, and nurses, 
all the way down to, to patients, insurance companies, employers, and part of the stakeholders for the kinds of insurance you're going to provide because all of that figures into access. Mm-hmm. And then it figures after access into what the focus of the care and delivery is going to be. Is it preventive-based? Is it procedure-based? Is it reductionist to find out what the uh, particular diagnosis is? Do you doctor shop to find the diagnosis? Who's responsible for that? Is it the employer? Is it the patient? Is it the clinician? That's where all the moral hazard comes in because our, our reimbursement system is so fragmented and because our reimbursement system is so fragmented, our access system is fragmented. Um, I don't see those kinds of discussions happening. The kinds of discussions that I do see happening are more residency programs opening up. More of those programs are in primary care, allopathic, all of them right now, mm-hmm. absolutely, all ACGME, uh, but taking uh, MDs and DOs in their residency programs and in the future, much more so. So that's purposeful, uh, it's granular, it's uh, happening because of hospital stakeholders that recognize that residency programs are good recruitment uh, of quality docs to be faculty and be associated with the residency and of the residents themselves graduating and being a part of the community. I, I see uh, clinicians uh, who are, are peppered in practice in rural areas as results of initiatives that are started by towns, by hospitals, by communities. Uh, private entities sometimes to forgive loans or stake the clinicians in some fashion uh, in, in order to uh, uh, be able to go to that community and to, to thrive as a clinician uh, with a decent lifestyle. Uh, and uh, those initiatives are all more or less at a local level mm-hmm. up to a state level. Okay. On a national level, we have stagnated. Bush uh, two uh, W whatever right. uh, increased the number of fairly qualified health centers in this country by quite a bit. Uh, if that number had continued to increase exponentially over the last decade, we'd be in much better shape to be able to take care of Americans than we are today. But those kinds of initiatives don't seem to follow a strategic plan that survives administration to administration. Mm-hmm. Or uh, perhaps it's it's even more basic than that. Um, doesn't seem to survive the will of the people from one administration to administration. That's an interesting way to think of it. Well, it seems that uh, policy is poll driven, and poll driven has some reflection of the will of the people. Right. It's very interesting. Um, so, are you optimistic for the future? Where do you where do you see primary care in ten, fifteen, twenty years? Sure. I mean, we have an awful lot, uh, we as a nation uh, have an awful lot to, to uh, look forward to in, in terms of, of being able to deliver quality health care. Uh, we as clinicians have an awful lot to look forward to with full lives of uh, helping uh, patients in much the same way as I've enjoyed my life doing it. Mm-hmm. I see that that future very clear, very open. Uh, and still uh, very much in the same vein as what I enjoyed. Uh, I don't see much difference there. Where where I would like to see improvement is our ability to offer people quality life choices as part of healthcare, Mm -hmm. rather than let's fix this particular disease and let's see if we can get access to you to take care of this particular problem. 
Right. And uh, I would like us as a, a healthcare um, uh, initiative uh, to adopt um, a much more uh, healthy lifestyle inducing uh, path uh, to uh, healthcare delivery than what we are now. And that's where I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic that we're going to be able to to do that unless we start organizing ourselves. I'm completely with you on goals. that. Yeah. It seems like uh, healthcare is doing fine, but it's not promoting health. It's promoting maybe medicine that is dealing with poor health. Yeah. And, and uh, pretty far downstream. And well, it's following where the money is. Right. Right. Well, um, maybe we can uh, leave everybody on a uh, <laughs> on an inspirational note. If you have any um, inspirational words of wisdom for people out there deciding which route to take in terms of which specialty to pursue or just uh, um, which uh, path they want to go down in medicine. Hmm. So uh, I look at myself as a journeyman. Uh, because I've had at least five different careers, and I have loved every single last one of them in medicine. So my message there is choose something that appeals to your gut. And if it only ends up appealing to your gut for a decade or a decade and a half, I'm here to tell you, you can change, do something else, keep right on going. You don't have to take a hit financially, and you can just continue to enjoy your professional life. It is absolutely possible, and it's just, I think it's the best field, the best career to be in because the opportunities really are the limits of your own imagination. Words of wisdom? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll do this. Um, I'll relate to you my first... Um, home visit as an attending physician sure. in Southwest Virginia, Appalachia. And I do this so that um, your listeners understand that um, you may not know exactly what to do, but if your heart's in the right place, you're going to end up doing the right thing anyway. So um, I got a call that someone who was 80 years old could not come to the clinic actually didn't want to come to the clinic, had never seen a physician ever, including birth, had been birthed by midwife, uh, had pretty much lived in her uh, cabin and uh, a sharecropper, worked her, her crop and uh, uh, had her offspring who were off doing her own thing. And uh, uh, she was living alone again, wow. uh, empty nest at, at the age of 80. Uh, and uh, uh, one of her children uh, called the clinic and said that uh, she was too sick to come out. She couldn't come out, wouldn't come out, and had a high fever and wasn't sounding right, kind of talking out of her head. Mm -hmm. So I went out, and um, this was my first uh, house call, and uh, uh, I got my escort stuck in a mud field. Uh, right. And it was a mud field, and that escort stayed there for quite a while until somebody drug it out with a tractor a few days later. Oh, no. But uh, uh, so I ended up walking through mud to the rest of the door. She didn't have a phone. She didn't know it was coming, and I got greeted with a shotgun. Right. Um, and so I held my doctor bag up, you know, said where I was, and she looked at me, and she started laughing. And she looked at the car, and she really started laughing. Right. Right. And so she says to me, 
I'll let you take care of me if you can get my donkey back in the barn. And I turn around, and there's this donkey in, in the barnyard, all muddy, and the barnyard door open, and the donkey was having a heyday. Well, she let me chase that donkey around for a good 10 minutes before she started laughing, <laughs> called me over, held out her hand, had a couple of sugar cubes and carrots in her hand that said, use these. Mm. And so I did. And of course, the donkey went right back in the barn. And then I came back up to her and she said, I just wanted to be sure that you really cared about me before I let you take care of me. Mm-hmm. So... I didn't know anything about what I was doing when I dunked. I didn't know anything about what I was doing in that culture. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing on that front porch. I knew medicine. Sure. And um, fortunately, you know, the caretaker part of me came out to her, and so it was all good after that. And so um, that's my message. Just be you. Be you to your patients, and they're going to accept you. That's that's beautiful, and that's a beautiful way for us to uh, end the podcast. So, thank you so much for uh, delighting us with so much, uh, so many stories of your personal life and uh, and inspirational ideas for the future. You're welcome. Thank All you. Right, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Family Medicine Podcast. Remember to subscribe, follow, like, or whatever you do to show your dignity. Tune in next time. Her uterus was the universe. And it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized. Went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires and the stories well known. History ticks along like a metronome. And then I came to be walk talk and throw stuff all grown up i got a job now and showing up i'm sleep deprived i'm misaligned my appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time and then i met you lovely and smooth you quickly removed my modern man's blues i want to celebrate every breath that i take because i'm afraid i'm dreaming and i don't want to wait so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know the universe was my universe but I left to pursue the search of love but sometimes it hurt along the way if there's anything I've learned create a garden plant flowers in the dirt I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames play the game and wonder am I the hunted or the hunter when I was younger I met God and I hugged her she said hey baby instead of getting lost within how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin stop begin let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road going inch by inch don't sprint take it slow protect your soul travel long and far but make sure to come home because the love that's here is what keeps you going and gives you the power and the freedom to grow let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress this life is crazy but it's the goddamn best when life gets complex don't think just do it first it was simpler when the uterus was so big let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your.
body, mind, and soul I'm forever gonna grow into something we don't know The uterus was my universe The uterus was my universe The uterus was my universe And then I met you the uterus was my universe. Rain. The uterus was my Walk universe. Walk a mile in my moccasin. The uterus was my universe. Keeps you going. The uterus was my universe. Make sure to come home. The uterus was my universe. And then I met you. The uterus was my universe. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When the uterus was my universe. So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.